And as you sit down this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles. I hope you have them with you. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in the final section of verses from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Now we'll have today yet, we're going to uh, study these verses and, and break apart this text. Next week I plan to preach one more concluding message from the whole book of Acts. We've spent, um, well, the better part of several years in the book of Acts, and we're going to have a concluding message to hopefully try to tie it all together, remind us of some things that we've talked about, and then... Uh, we're going to start something new. Maybe I'll just, I wasn't necessarily going to talk about this, but maybe I'll just uh, throw it out there. Uh, I'm going to be missing for one Sunday. I'll be doing some meetings in Iowa, uh, the middle of the month here. And then when I come back, my intention is to uh, start a new series. And I typically like to preach through the book, a book of Scripture. I deviate at times to do some topical kinds of things. And uh, in consultation with the elders, the leadership team, I just thought it was a, would be appropriate to spend a significant amount of time preaching through Two different uh, uh, documents, if you will, that we as a church sort of hold as central. Uh, and the first is a statement of theology, which is to say what we believe. And the second is a statement of faith and practice, which is to say how we think we live that theology out. Um, and so uh, it's been, actually, I don't know that, I don't think I've ever done that in its entirety that I've preached through that. You know, at times we kind of reach in and say, here's some things. Um, and so we're going to take some time. We actually ordered copies of our Statement of Theology. We have, I have them in my office. I'll get them out in your mailbox probably next week and uh, have some copies sitting around. I'm encouraging you to read it. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing how often in our lives that we uh, think we know what we believe or we just have been taught our whole lives what, what we believe, and it just sort of is back there all the time. And we don't always maybe know, yeah, this is what we said. This is what I say I believe, and this is how it informs how I live my life. And so we're gonna, I'm going to take some time. Actually, it's going to take probably half a year, all told, uh, just kind of stepping through. And some of this will be very basic things. I don't think it's going to be earth-shattering, but I think it's a good reminder for us. Here are the things that we believe about who God is, about who Jesus is, about the Holy Spirit, about who we are, about what God has to say about us. And then we're going to kind of go off of that. Those are, that's going to be very driven by Scripture, of course. And then we're going to go off of that and say, here's how we think that boils down to living life together as a body of Christ. Um, if you know anything about our statement of faith and practice, it contains a lot of principles out of Scripture. It does not contain a lot of lists of what that actually looks like, which is why you see some diversity in how that's applied. Um, that, of course, is a little more difficult to teach through because uh, I have my convictions, how I think that means. My intention is not necessarily to tell you what my convictions are, although I'm sure that's going to be shared, but it's to help you connect those two documents together. Here's what the Bible says about who God is and who you are, what God wants from us. Here's what we think that looks like being lived out. So anyway, that's where we're headed. Uh, so uh, that's not today yet. Today we're going to continue or finish up the book of Acts. Have, like I said, one concluding message next week. Well, let's jump in so that we can uh, spend adequate enough time with the Word of God. That's really where we want to spend our time on on a Sunday morning. So join with me, Acts chapter 28, we're going to start in verse 17, they have just made their way into Rome after a long and difficult journey, they've arrived and Paul, uh, just to kind of help you visualize the situation, Paul it says he was allowed to stay by himself, but he had a soldier with him and uh, Josephus tells us that in many cases this kind of captivity had meant that a Roman soldier was chained to Paul or chained to the prisoner at all times. So one arm or one leg perhaps chained to the Roman soldier. And obviously that creates some 
uh, creates some uh, uh, hindrances in your life. By the way, if you ever think about this, not just for you, but for the soldier that's with you, has to go everywhere you go. Now, they were on shift, so they came and left and came and left, but there's always one of them attached to Paul at all times. Verse 17, after three days, he, Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, verse 21, they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from, I'm sorry, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, and this is the statement he made. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, he continues, this is Paul speaking again, not quoting anymore, Paul speaking, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. Now, in the ESV, it jumps to verse 30. It does not repeat, verse, or does not say verse 29, which is a repeat of verse uh, 25, basically. So you may have an insertion there which says that they, uh, they, after they heard that, they departed and they disputed among themselves. Verse 30 then says, He lived there, Paul lived there, two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Before we jump in, let's just one more time lift this uh, text to the Lord and ask him to speak to us. Father, thank you so much. It's your inspired word, your Holy Spirit uh, inspired Luke how to write and what to write and what to say. And so we want to learn from it. From a, as we've said all, all this whole time through, God, from a historical context, we want to learn from it. What it meant, what happened, how things broke apart. But more than that, we want your word to take the life that you've said it has and its ability that you said it has to come into our own lives and our own hearts and teach us today. I'm continually amazed, God, how you're able to take situations that happened back then and overlay them and paint a spiritual picture for us that goes far beyond just that specific situation, but instructs us on how to live our lives. May it be true again today. We appeal to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to break the text apart just in a couple of different ways. There's really just that first section, which is Paul doing what he always does. Every place that Paul went, he always did what? He said to the Jew first and then the Gentile. 
And we see the same thing. We did every place that he went. I think I'm at the end of my show. Can we go to the beginning of my show, Bryce? Can you make, are you on the beginning slide? Throw it back up there if you would. Thank you very much. Just like he did in every single place that he went to, it says that he went first to the Jews. So he didn't waste a lot of time. He just arrived at Rome. He's been on the road. Now, he wintered on the island there, of course, but he just, he, he spent a long journey. He's just arrived. He's in chains. They're getting settled in. And yet, after three days, he says, I'm going to call the leaders of the Jews together, and I'm going to see what they've heard about me. And what he does then, of course, is he, we've, we've studied all this stuff in detail, but he gives them a summary. He says, here's how it went. I was in Jerusalem. I got arrested. I didn't do anything. They had no reason to arrest me, but I got arrested. I got handed over to the Romans. And even though the Romans, now he only says, he didn't make it sound like a single instance. We know from studying that he, multiple times, the Romans said, I don't think there's anything wrong with this guy. We should let him go. But the Jews continued to object. In fact, the Jews had continued to make this pact, Right? We are going to kill Paul if it's the last thing we do. We are not going to eat, in fact, until Paul is dead. And because of that, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, and that's why I'm here today. We know all those things, right? Let me just point out two things that Paul says as he speaks to the Jews here, the Jewish leaders, that I think are remarkable or should be pointed out. Here's the first. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, I appeal to Caesar even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now stop just for a moment. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. When Paul went on his first missionary journey, who were the people that opposed him every stop of the way? There's a few instances where there were Gentiles, but primarily Jews. Every place he went. In fact, many times it reads like this. He goes to the next town after getting kicked out, and who should come after him? But some Jews from the town he just left followed after him and began to stir up the Jews there. On the second missionary journey, who opposed Paul about every place he went? The Jews, right? I could go on, right? When he came to Jerusalem, who arrested Paul? Who made so that, well, like, who made so that the Romans had to come get him? Who was trying to kill him? Who was beating him up? The Jews. Who vowed that they would not eat until they killed Paul? How is it again that he says, I have nothing against them? You know, we should recognize that from a human standpoint, Paul had every reason to actually turn this whole thing around and say, okay, Caesar, now I'm in your presence. Let's talk about what they've been doing to me. It's totally unjustified. It's totally not true. They have no reason for saying any of these things. They've oppressed me. They have beaten me. They have caused me to lose all everything I have. They've made me go hungry. They've stripped me. They've chased me out. They've thrown me in jail. They've vowed to kill me. Why don't you take care of these people? And he says, though I have nothing to bring against them. I have no charge. I would just have a pretty good guess that there have been far less significant things that have been done against us in our lifetimes, and we cry bloody murder like this has got to get taken care of. It lends authenticity to Paul when he would write to the Romans this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, from the mouth of someone who will never take anything from anyone, those words don't mean a whole lot, do they? 
When, from the mouth of someone who continually by his example shows that if you do anything to me, I'm going to pay you back immediately, those words ring empty. Much like our words ring empty when we try to tell someone how they're not living for Christ when our own life doesn't match up to it. But for Paul to say these words when he's demonstrated that he can stand in front of Jews and say, I hold nothing against you. Those words suddenly mean a lot, don't they? Those words, in fact, form the basis of, since I brought up the topic of where we're going to go next, the basis of Paul having a theology about who God is, that God is just, that it is God's business to take care of what people do on earth. For when we sin, we sin first and foremost against God and not against people, although it almost always affects people. Which means if we have sinned first and foremost against God and he is the just one, it is his to take care of, not ours. And Paul demonstrates to us what it means to say, here's what I believe about God, which means I will live that out in my life. You see, there's a disconnect for many of us. I'm going to just tell you, there's probably going to be lots of those in the series I have coming up. Not just for you, but for me. Where I say I believe something about God, the reality is my life practice shows something completely different. If I believe that God is just, and I take him at his word when he says, it's mine to repay, that means, pay careful attention, that means I cannot be the one that takes retribution or pays someone back when they do something to me. Ouch. That's the first thing I want you to notice about what Paul said. The second thing I want you to notice about what Paul said is he continually always brings it back to the central point of what he's talking. Even in just his summary, as he's talking to the Jewish people about why he's there, the leaders, and saying, and he's going to make sure, like, have you heard about me? Do you know anything about me? Like, what kind of reception am I going to get? Always, 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 he brings it back to the central point of what he lives his life for. He says, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Do you see what he does, by the way, when he does that? He immediately finds the thing that binds them together, him and the ones he calls brothers just now, his Jews, because he says, I am part of the nation of Israel, and it is because of our shared hope that we, uh, that I'm here, that I'm wearing this chain. It's our shared hope. In other words, he, he continually, he's talking to Jews, by the way, he continually brings it back for them to say, listen, you and I have the same hope. We are looking at the same scriptures and saying it's the same thing that God is going to do. Also in this statement, however, he, he illustrates or opens up the thing that's setting them apart, right? Because he says, I believe that hope has already come. His name is Jesus. And they would say, we're still waiting for that hope. Not a bad practice, by the way, of two things. Of always, 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 always bring our conversations back to the main reason we have in life to talk about things, which is Jesus. But also, notice his practice of finding something in common with the people he's talking to before illustrating what he has that's different. Also notice what he's doing. He's saying, here's the things that all of us are looking for. I'm going to tell you why Jesus is the answer to that. Again, kind of divorcing it from the situation a bit and laying it as a pattern for us, we see that there's things that the Lord is teaching us on what to do even in the midst of discovering the story of what Paul did. Finding common ground with someone. Identifying every human wants hope of some kind, right? Every human wants something to be bigger than themselves. Whether we admit it or not, by the way, many of us like to say, I mean, maybe not us here, but many of the world like to say, nope, all I'm interested in is just what I can, but it's really not true. Just 
look at how happy the world is and how much joy there is out there. Right? Every human heart is built to long for something more. That's like Paul saying, we're together in this. There's a hope that every one of us is yearning for. And then he's able to say, by the way, can I tell you, because I believe that hope has already come. His name is Jesus. All right. He said why he's there. He wants to know what they think about him. And here's how they respond. First part of the response is pretty good, right? He says, listen. They say to him, listen, we haven't heard anything about you. We haven't received any letters. There's nobody that's come from your area that's given an evil report or spoken anything bad about you. We don't know anything about you. To which I'm sure Paul breathed a sigh of relief, right? Because he was pretty used to about everywhere he went, people already had a pretty good idea of him and what they thought about him. But the next verse is not quite so rosy. Look at what they say. He say, but we would like to know from you what your views are, because with regard to this sect. Now, when they say this sect, what are they referring to? What's the this sect they're referring to? Christianity. Remember, I just told you. Now, we didn't get the whole text, because remember, I just told you, he said it's because of the hope of Israel. And I'm, excuse me, I'm sure that Paul followed it up with saying, and I believe Jesus is that hope. And they say, regard to this sect, we want to know what you think or what your views are because we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, given uh, humanity's and our tendency to um, exaggerate things sometimes, you know, like when our kids say everyone's doing it or everyone has thought this or everywhere, that every, it's, it's everywhere we often think, eh, well, not really, right? So given human proclivity to say, you know, it's everywhere, it is interesting to note that for the gospel, for the Christianity to be spoken against everywhere, everywhere requires that it has gone everywhere, right? And we know, in fact, that the gospel had spread already to Rome. Paul didn't introduce it to Rome. It was there. Everywhere it's spoken against. Can I point out, by the way, there's a specific word they use for the word sect. Now, these are Jewish people talking. Luke is recording what they said. And they said, we have heard about this sect. The Greek word there is, I'm probably not going to pronounce it right, ha ha It's the word where we get the word heresy from. Heresy comes from there. They're saying, we have heard about this heresy, this untruth, this distortion of God's word. We want to know what your views are. But I would like to point out to you, that word has been used several times already in the book of Acts. Not spoken by Jews, but we would say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from Paul's pen. I'm sorry, from Luke's pen. The first time in Acts chapter 5 verse 17 it's used, and it is spoken about of this group called the Sadducees. This sect, this heresy of the Sadducees. The second time it's spoken about is in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, and in that time it's referring to this sect of the Pharisees. You see what God is doing. You see what the Holy Spirit is writing, is letting us know. They're speaking to him and saying, we want to know what this heretical belief is all about. And Luke has already identified for us that there are several heretical beliefs among the Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. No doubt he's actually speaking to some of them right there in that, in that instance, right? By the way, I would only end that part by saying 
we should continually go to the Word of God to inform us what is heretical and what is not heretical. I can show you from both of those, from just the, the book of Acts here, that the Word of God clearly demonstrates that those two, Sadducees and Pharisees, were heretical. They have distorted God's teaching. And although this came from the mouth of the Jews, we know very clearly that it's used in a sense that lets us know that's not what God says about Jesus and the hope that's found in him. That is not a distortion of God's word. We should continually go to the word of God to identify what is heretical and what is not heretical. Let's go to the second major section. For after Paul has his introduction with the Jews and they want to know what he has to say, they appoint a day. They say, we're going to come at such and such day. And when they come, there's not just a few of them, right? Paul is renting a home. We know from the end that he's living there at his own expense. Paul is renting a home. And they come to him in a big number, in a greater number, and they want to know what Paul has to say. And if you know anything about Paul, he doesn't hold back, does he? We only get a few things here in the text. We obviously have to understand that Paul said lots more things. We know Paul can talk a long time, right? Picture of people falling out of windows, right? We know Paul can talk for a long time. In fact, the text tells us that from morning until evening... He expounded to them. He opened the word of God. That's really what he did. He opened the word of God. He testified to the kingdom of God, and he tried to convince them from, about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That is to say, from what we call the Old Testament, from the five books of Moses and from the prophets. Now, we have a few more books in the Old Testament than just those, but that is the heart of it. Now, notice what he's doing. Two things, very clear. Again, he's making common ground, and then he's showing where there's, where, he's, where there's a distinction that he's trying to convince them of something. He says, I'm going to testify to the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom the Jews saw themselves part of. Right? They were part of God's kingdom. They, in fact, were God's kingdom, according to them. He says, I'm testifying to the kingdom of God. That's the common ground. I want to demonstrate how God moves among humans. And then he says... I want to convince you. I want to lead you to putting your faith in this man, Jesus. And I want to show you. Now, this is always a good exercise for us, by the way. Because we tend to only rely on the New Testament when we tell people about who Jesus is. Think of what Paul and the people in Acts, the, the, the apostles, the early apostles had to do. They had to convince them and show them from the Old Testament that Jesus was who they said he was. I submit to you it was entirely possible because they did it. And I submit to you that perhaps we should brush up every once in a while on what it would mean to demonstrate that Jesus is not just introduced in the New Testament and suddenly he's the fulfillment of everything God has been talking about. But God has in fact been talking about him from the beginning. That's exactly what Paul did. He said, I will demonstrate to you, I'm going to convince you from the law of Moses and from the prophets themselves that Jesus is in fact the one that God has said he would send. I have no doubt that he did what we sometimes do. We use, I use it today to, sh to tell people why we know the Bible is true. But he did it that uh, back then to demonstrate why Jesus was who he says he was. Because he fulfilled all these prophecies. Because every prophecy that God spoke about through the prophets, he fulfilled in Jesus. I have no doubt that Paul went down some of those lists and said, listen, now they knew Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus was alive not too long before that. And they said, listen, this is where he was born. This is where he came from. This is how he lived his life. This is what happened. And went back over and over again. Maybe it's a good practice for us to go back over and over again to say, God talked about this. Not just, in, not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God talked about this in Isaiah. God talked about this in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. God talked about this all in the Psalms. 
God talked about this through Moses. It's what allows us to say that Jesus wasn't just plan B for God, right? It wasn't just, well, humanity went their own way and now I gotta scramble for some plan and figure out what to do. God's intention from the beginning was that he himself would come to be our rescue. That he himself would redeem and purchase us back when we had walked away and sold ourselves to the enemy. Just like with Jesus when he was walking on earth, as he talked about the kingdom of God, and as he demonstrated that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, some believed and some didn't, right? But that's nothing new, by the way. That wasn't unique to Jesus and then happened to Paul, too. For if you go back in the Old Testament, you see that the same thing happened to those prophets, didn't it? That when they spoke for God, some people believed and some people didn't. Even in the midst of some amazing miracles, right? Even in the midst of some amazing movements of God and God demonstrating who He is. We, we don't have time. This is, this, we don't have time, but we could go back and look at all those, right? I mean, you think of the sea parting. That's pretty big, right? That's pretty amazing. And yet some believed and some didn't. Therefore, do not harden your hearts as in the day of Meribah. Well, what is that? What's that referring to? That's pointing back to right after they came out of the sea that parted for them, where they began to harden their hearts and grumble against God because there wasn't food and water there for them to eat. And they said, we'd rather go back to Egypt. Interestingly enough, Paul uses the same reference, right? For as some of them begin to agree, some of them begin to disagree, and they have this mumble jumble about them, and they have this, this discussion about them, and they begin to say, we don't like this. And he says, this is just like Isaiah said. And this comes, by the way, right after Isaiah received the call of God. You know this amazing scene where Isaiah sees the Lord, and he describes this, this amazing holiness, and he's like, I'm an unclean man, and there's an, an angel that comes and, and, and purifies him, and, he said, and God says, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, send me! And God's first message says, go to these people and tell them. This is the quotation that Paul just said. Go to these people and tell them, you will indeed hear, but you will not understand. You will indeed see, but you'll never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. We have this buzzword thrown around, and it's even been used here sometimes. And I can tell you, this is, this is not a seeker-sensitive model to finding people to follow Jesus. To tell them. Yeah, when you're not sure you're going to believe. You know, Isaiah talked about that. You harden your heart, and even though you, you hear it, you can't understand it. Even though you see it, you can't perceive it. It's just like God said back there. It's just like it is today. Some of you are going to get it. Some of you won't. Ouch. This is what started sending them away and saying, huh, I'm done with this guy. We should understand something, though. Because this pops up with the prophets. This pops up with Jesus. This pops up with Paul. This pops up with us today. We should understand the principle that's laid out in Scripture. That when our hearts become hard, for whatever reason, when our hearts become hard, then we can hear as much as we want to, but we will not understand. We can see as much as possible, but we will not perceive. 
In fact, when you read this, sometimes maybe it's confusing, but when you read that, it says, it says that lest they should hear with their eyes and hear with their ears, that, really should, that word really should maybe better be translated as otherwise they're going to. It's because their heart is hard, otherwise they would know, otherwise they would hear, otherwise they would see. And for when that would happen, when they'd understand, look, it, it's very logical, it, says, it just lays it out. When that would happen, then they would turn to God. You see, that part is, is so eminently clear in Scripture that when you truly understand who God is and who I am and what a mess I am and how much I need Him and what He's done through Jesus, there's only one response when you truly understand, and that is to turn to Him, to repent. That's what that word means, to repent and become healed. That's the only response. So if you're not doing that, it means your heart is hardened in some way so that even though you're hearing, you don't understand. Even though you're seeing, you don't perceive. And there's people like that everywhere across the world. There's people like that everywhere in our churches too, by the way. We must understand the progression for it is the hardened heart that keeps us from entering fully into what God has. It's why a couple of weeks ago on the, on the day of baptism, I talked about the fact that the book of Proverbs tells us that we should guard our hearts above all things, for it is the wellspring of life, right? It's what matters in here. A soft heart toward God is what matters more than anything else. And believe me, I know there are so many things in life that come in and want to harden that heart. There's so many betrayals. There's so many hurts. There's so many things that I mess up myself that make me think I'm not worthy of it. And the enemy, of course, likes to hear those things and likes to camp on those things and say, you're right, you're not. To which the Bible says, you're right, you're not. But God does love you and he created you and he made a way for you even though you don't deserve it. Therefore, again I quote, don't harden your heart as in the day of Meribah. But hear the Lord, hear his word, hear his, his constant pursuit of you. Hear his knocking, for Jesus said those words. If any man hears me knocking at the door and opens the door, I will come in and enter and set Jesus used these same words at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke records that he's walking along the road with these two men. Look what he says about them, because they don't understand. They say there was a man, and we had hoped that he would be the Messiah, but now he was dead and he's in the grave. Are you the only guy around that doesn't know about this? Surely you've heard about this. And Jesus looks at them and he says in Luke 24, 25, Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You see, he goes back to the exact same place that Paul went back to. God already shared with you about that. If I can just say this, I want to say it as gently as I can. And I want you to know I say this about myself as much as I say it about any of you. And I don't want you to get a wrong picture about who God is out of this. So this is my, this is my human take on this but I think there's lots of times when we don't get something and it's like God is saying I already talked about it I already told you I already told you don't you believe why are you not believing what I've said through the prophets why are you not believing what I said in my word about who Jesus is and what he's done But I'm encouraged by this story. If you keep reading the story of Jesus and walking with those two on the way to Emmaus, he sits down with them. And then, well, let me just read it for you because it's, 
Not only does Luke tell us that Jesus had the same, he recognized the same hardness of heart, the same slow of believing, even among his disciples, among those who followed him, but he also tells us that Jesus is the key to beginning to understand, to letting your heart be softened. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, it says, as they were together, he appeared with his disciples and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Sounds very familiar to what Paul just said, right? Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Those are the last, that's the ending of the gospel of Luke. I tell you, nothing has changed, by the way. It is still in Jesus and through his Holy Spirit that we begin to understand the words that he's written. That we begin, they begin to make sense. That our hearts are softened so that we can hear and understand. We can see and perceive so that we may turn and be healed. It is still that way. In fact, Paul would write those words. Let me just read them for you because he can say it much better than I can. It's still that way. He wrote, and again, referring to the, uh, turning to the book of Romans. Rome, I'm sorry, not Romans. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is Paul's letter, but not to Romans to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, because we have this hope, the hope of Israel, since it's already here, since Jesus is already here, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. Same theme. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. He's referring to Jewish people. A veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What an amazing passage of what God's intention for us is. If we do not receive it in Jesus, everything that's talked about in here doesn't either make sense to us or doesn't come to fruition, doesn't, doesn't apply, doesn't work for us, doesn't, doesn't come out. And it is only in what Jesus has done. Can I make this suggestion to us? I think if you know me, if you're part of the church here, I think you don't, uh, you're not going to be surprised to hear this, but can I make this suggestion to us, to myself? Many of us do not experience the fullness of the Lord and what he wants to do in our lives because we're trying to make a go of it ourselves too much. We're trying to do it on our own strength too much. Only when we are in Christ does this veil get lifted and we begin to behold with unveiled face the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to be turned into his image. At any rate, let's go back to Acts. Or perhaps the most explosive thing that Paul said in those closing sentences that really stirred the pot and sent them away was verse 27. For he says, let it be known, therefore. Understand then, your, your, your hearts are hard. They become dull. You're hearing, but you're not understanding. You're seeing, but you're not perceiving. I'm laying it out for you. You just can't see it. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. They will listen. Their hearts are ready. They'll hear this.
I don't know if you get tired of me pointing this out. I hope you don't. But I can almost never come to places like this without stopping to acknowledge what an amazing blessing and gift it is that these kind of verses are in Scripture. Because you and I are the Gentiles. You and I are the ones on the outside. We're not Jewish. At least I don't know that anybody in here is Jewish. Which means we're not, like everything we read and sometimes take for granted, we're not part of what's written about in here except for that these verses, let it be known, the salvation that God is working through Jesus, it will go to the Gentiles and they'll listen. I'm so grateful. I hope you're so grateful. Otherwise, we wouldn't know it. Otherwise, it wouldn't apply to us. We would read, maybe, perhaps, potentially read about this nation that God chose, and they're his people, and they're the only ones that have access to it. Praise the Lord that that's not what God intended. Well, let's wrap this up. Last couple of verses. He lived there for two whole years. This is the conclusion. All of the book of Acts, every wonderful thing we've seen God do, all the sovereignty he's displayed, all the ways he's worked in just powerful ways, all the ways the gospel has gone forth, all the things we've seen, and it comes down to these two verses. Paul lived in Rome for two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed anybody and everybody who would come to him. My guess is Jews, Gentiles, Romans, every, I mean, that would include the Gentiles, of course, but everybody who came to Paul, Paul received, he welcomed it occurred to me, I didn't say this, but it occurred to me a little earlier on, it said that he talked to them from morning till evening. And then he says he welcomes all of them, whoever came. I, I suspect that for the servant of God, it should be like that. As long as someone's willing to listen about Jesus, we should be willing to talk about him. As long as someone's willing to pursue and, and search out and, and hear more about it, we should be willing to share more about it. Unfortunately, we're too busy sometimes, aren't we? We have other things we'd like to talk about. That's not a good thing, by the way. It says that as he came to him, he did two things. Now, this is a summary, so it's not just that he did these, I mean, but he did two things. He proclaimed, I'll just go to my next slide. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness, without hindrance. By the way, that's a restatement of verse 23 above. When he talked to the Jews to start with, what did he do? He testified to the kingdom of God, and he tried to convince them about Jesus Christ from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Here he does the same thing. Again, I see a pattern being laid for us. We should pay attention. This is how the gospel advances. We proclaim the kingdom of God, who God is and what he wants to do among us, and we teach that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that's brought about that fulfillment, and he is the Lord of that kingdom. That makes it seem pretty simple, right? And yet we're so busy doing lots of other things. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and it says without hindrance. That's a new thing, by the way. About every other place Paul has gone, he's been hindered and opposed. And now he is where God wants him to be and he does it without hindrance. Do you ever feel like the book of Acts ends rather open-endedly? Ends rather, like, without a very good conclusion? Sort of just leaves us hanging there. What happened to Paul after this? You know, you th seem to think, according to our human minds, we would think, like, let's end with the death of Paul, perhaps. Or Paul dies. Or let's end with, you know, some other monumental thing that's sort of the conclusion. And yet it just sort of, like, there it is. Paul lived there for two years. Anybody who came to me talked to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He talked about Jesus. I submit to you that this open-ended ending 
does two things. The first is it ties back to the beginning of the book of Acts. Remember the beginning of the book of Acts when Jesus was still walking before he ascended? His disciples, he talked to them and he said, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But notice, leaving it open-ended, at one hand reaches back, but on the other hand, when it's open like that, I believe it's left that way so that we see ourselves as part of the ongoing, continuing, unfolding story of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. It didn't end in Acts, which is why there's no conclusion there. It didn't end there. What God began when the Holy Spirit came on them and said, you're going to be my witnesses, and began to spread there, is still unfolding. There are still nations and languages and tribes that have not heard the name of Jesus, which means there's still a task left to do, isn't there? And we today are part of that. If that's, now I'm not, I don't want to make too big a deal about that. If, that's, if this would have concluded and tied up in a nice, neat thumb, we might have been able to say, well, that was done, and now here we are today. But instead, it's left frayed and open-ended, and God has continued to push out the gospel. Jesus has continued to build his church. By the way, his church is growing faster today than it ever has. Do you know that? We don't believe that because we're living in America where it's dying, where it's like empty inside and it's just like... But the church is growing faster today than it ever has around the world. By leaps and bounds in Asia, in the Middle East, where no one talks about it, where there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Muslims hearing about Jesus and coming to see Jesus in dreams. And in Africa, and in Central America, South America, the scales are beginning to tip, by the way. There's beginning to be more missionaries sent from the global south than the north. This is not a good thing from our perspective, by the way, but I want to point out to you that the gospel is still going forth. God hasn't folded his hands and said, well, that didn't work. I want to be careful how I say this because I, I, I know there's a, lot of, there's a lot of twisting of this out there that I, I'm, not, I'm not condoning. So please hear me. But the acts of God's disciples still being lived out we are still his disciples, still being lived out. I'm not, please understand, I'm not calling us apostles like these guys here. But I don't think it changed that if we're followers of Jesus, we're supposed to proclaim the kingdom of God and teach who Jesus is with all boldness. I don't think it changed that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, that it changes our mission in life and what we're supposed to do. I don't think when Jesus said that the confession of faith that come, brings us into the church is what he's going to build his church on and the gates of hell won't prevail against us, I don't think that changed. I don't think that closed here. I think it will only close when Jesus returns. I don't think it changed when Paul said that we are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are making his appeal on his behalf that all would be reconciled to Christ. Which means... That story, as it were for us, is we're still part of it. You and I are supposed to be part of it. The Great Commission still exists, right? Right? Does it? Or do we not care about it? 
Perhaps if we don't, that's why the church is folding here in America. I don't want to say it too harshly, but I do want to be honest with you. If we're not very excited about that, if we're not very about that, if we don't care about that, we have other things to do with our lives other than proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom and teaching about Jesus, I would say that's probably exhibit A as to why we have a dying church. Furthermore, I would say that if we think we're going to somehow have salvation in Jesus Christ and expect to arrive someday hearing words that say, well done, good and faithful servant, only we're not being faithful with what he's given us, then we're not going to hear those words. We're not going to. I, I don't, you know me, I don't shy away from saying, making strong statements and, and, and scaring you into something. I don't think that's the reason why you should, you, you should follow God because you love him. But I also will not back away from the fact that if we have some twisted idea that we can call Jesus our Savior without letting him be Lord of our life and directing everything we do and having him making the kingdom of God our primary focus, then I don't think we're going to hear those words at the end. Many, many will be on that day, Jesus said, will come to me and said, Lord, Lord, look at all the things I did. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I don't know you. Well, I was intending on reading these words as a closing, so I'll just read them. Paul's words to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 8. Sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. If you try to find chapter 8 in 2 Timothy, you'll be looking for a long time. In preparation for a conclusion next week, may we remember these words. In preparation for living your life this week, may you remember these words. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word this morning. Not only do we need it desperately in our lives, but we want to confess that it only is living and active in our life when our hearts are soft before you, when we are yielded to you, when we uh, have come into your presence and we know, are knowing you, are getting to know you, are learning, are growing in our knowledge of you, are growing in, in becoming like you and in loving you, even as we are fully known. Only in you, Jesus, is the veil lifted. Perhaps God is worth, as I'm praying here to you, it's just worth acknowledging how silly it is of us to hold something over the Jews and say, you guys were fooled by the Old Testament. You guys didn't see Jesus when he came. We know the truth. We know we, we have all this understanding. And yet, when we truly don't have Christ, that same veil exists for us. May we be able to sing, or to say as we sang this morning, 
Father, I am thine, O Lord. I've heard your voice. I have heard it. My heart was soft to you. I have heard it, and I answered. I came to your call. I said, I have no hope but Jesus Christ. I prayed, and you wiped my guilt away. Oh, let me stay forever yours. One of those moments, God, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's one of those moments where there's so many words jumbled around. There's so many things I feel like ought to be said, and yet at the same time, like nothing. I just want you and your spirit to deal with us in our hearts. None of us are convinced by my words. But every one of us is convinced when we allow your spirit to have access to our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes. Always return, God, to just thanking you for loving us. That you delight in us. That you sing over us. That you quiet us with your love. We don't deserve it. Even when we are faithless, you're faithful to us because you can't deny yourself. It's who you are. What an amazing statement of just exhortation that is to us. Even when we have turned away from you, you cannot deny yourself. and You're always faithful. You're always waiting. You're always that father at the end of the driveway waiting for his son to come home. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand this morning? In the words from the word of God that were read this morning, proclaiming Jesus Christ, take hold of our hearts and our minds, and may his name be on our lips. Wherever you go this week, may his name be on your lips. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.